Welcome to The Property Wizard. If you are brand new to the real estate investment world or have limited experience, you've come to the right place. Freddie Crouch has over 35 years of real estate investing experience. He's seen it all and he's ready to share it with you. This podcast takes an inside look at investing in real estate, what to look for, and most of all, how to move forward. Please welcome the property wizard, Freddie. Today on the Freddie and Bernie show, I really think that's got a, a catchy ring to it, Bernie. What do you think? The Freddie and Bernie show. Freddie, I'm loving it. Wonderful to have you on board. Well, we finished up the last podcast talking about what makes real estate such a great investment in podcast number one. And number two, we discussed what type of investor you are. So what do you think, Bernie? Do you have any questions? Do you have a better idea on what kind of investor you might be? Uh, right now, where I am financially, I'm going to probably want to start small and grow. I want to leverage what I have and leverage what I get. Yeah, excellent, excellent. That is a brilliant way to start. I mean, it's the start, the genesis of a longer-term investment plan or program. And I always feel that it's best to take baby steps first. As your knowledge and your experience grows, you'll be able to delve into, you know, other facets in a more expanded type portfolio. So today we're going to be discussing the different types of properties there are to invest in. And there's all sorts of them. We're probably going to start off first discussing residential investments and primarily your own residence, the home that you call home. A lot of people don't necessarily feel or quantify that as a real estate investment, but it is. Number one, for a lot of reasons, you can make that a better performing real estate investment by doing some very minor things. What I'm speaking about is something as simple as renting out a room to a student. You know, there are a lot of exchange programs right now, ESL programs, English as a second language programs, where now I know the environment right now hasn't been friendly because of COVID, but that'll once again open back up and the opportunities to take in ESL students come back around. And sometimes they're not just here on their own, but they're here and being sponsored by organizations that just specialize in bringing students from all around the world and finding homes for them where they can actually learn while attending school during the day, where they can learn and interact with a family who speaks either English or French or whatever language or dialect the student is here to learn. So something as simple as renting out a room for a nominal amount, but if you take that money and apply it very strictly to making additional payments to pay down your principal balance of your mortgage. And most mortgages will allow you to prepay at least 10% annually, many of them 20% annually, the principal balance. So what I'm referencing here is that if you had $200,000 mortgage, you can make a lump sum payment of between $20,000 and $40,000, depending on the percentage of the principal balance your financial institution allows you to pay back. And by doing that, if you're able, now I'm not suggesting that, you know, 
just strictly using the income that you receive from a student, you'll be able to do or have that amount of money to put down. But that in combination with maybe the monies you'll receive back, income tax time, if you prepay your taxes, can add up to a considerable balance. I know of a couple who had a $200,000 mortgage and between leasing a room, renting a room to a student and with their annual income tax refunds, they were able to pay that $200,000 down in five years. Five years when the original amortization was 25 years. So making even the most nominal payment make an incredible difference in how quickly you can pay down your mortgage. Do you follow that? Yeah, burden? yeah. I guess when I when you're talking about uh, with taxes and stuff, does this influence capital gains and stuff when you write off expenses, or is that what you're talking about, or? No. So what we're doing, and that's really we're going to have an accountant on the show, and we're going to go through uh, just that topic. But essentially, if you rent a room and if you want to offset that income by using a proportionate share when i say proportionate this is very very important now again we'll have an accountant on the show but you're only allowed to use that proportion of your expenses relating to the area that your tenant occupies you can't write off 100% of your taxes and utility payments if all this tenant is doing is renting a room. Okay. It's very much like a business. While many, many people have offices in their homes, you can't legitimately write off, again, your total taxes and utility payments because you have an office in your home. You can only write a proportional amount off that, that portion of your home that you actually occupy or use mm-hmm for business purposes, which is up to negotiation. But again, that topic will be much, much more, you know, in more detail discussed when we have our accountant on the show. Now, what I'm talking about is taking that income, setting it aside and using that income specifically for the purposes of paying down the principal balance of your mortgage. Just the most nominal amount as you know, very often we're given the option when we take on a mortgage of either bi-weekly or monthly payments. Well, by choosing a bi-weekly payment, you're essentially making two additional payments a year. Those two additional payments a year will reduce your mortgage from a 25-year amortization down to just short of 18 years. And that's just that amount. So again, You can pay it down annually or many mortgages will allow you to turn around and increase your payment by a proportionate share, 10%. So that's specifically what I'm talking about there. So you can rent a room to a student. You can legalize a lower level apartment and big emphasis on legalize because you definitely don't want to get into a situation where you've got an illegal apartment in your home. Now, every area, every province is different, but there's nothing stopping you from renting any area of your home. Where the difference really kind of lies, and I've come across this many times, is that you can rent your basement out, but you cannot have a functioning oven or stove in your basement. You cannot do that. If you want to put a hot plate, that's one thing, 
but you cannot have a functioning oven or stove in your basement. The moment you do that, you have to retrofit the entire area, the entire basement up to current code. And that includes ceiling height, that includes fire separations, it includes dampers in the furnace ducts. It is a major undertaking. Now, wow. some people will buy their home with the premise of yes, doing just that, and that's okay. But basement renovations can run you anywhere from to legalize an apartment just as a off the cuff number between forty five and seventy five thousand dollars. So it's a major undertaking. And if you buy a property or this is something that you want to do on a permanent basis, then I would suggest you have it done properly. You have an architect draft the plans. You go down and make sure that the plans fulfill all the requirements of your local municipality and the provincial building code and then proceed. So very, very legitimate way to do it. If you want a permanent unit, Mm -hmm. And I'm not recommending against that. As a matter of fact, I'm saying brilliant, but be prepared to spend the money. So big caveat, if you don't put an oven or stove in, that requirement isn't so clear and it's not something that you have to do. You cannot have an ignition source. That's it. So very, very important. But check with your municipality and your provincial building bylaws before making that decision. But that's great. If... I guess some of it depends on you being involved and in, um, supporting that activity, right? If you're running an office, you're in the space. If you're renting the space out to a, a student, English as a second language, versus renting out a house and then stocking and supplying it to uh, even a, a, if you're renting out like an Airbnb option for somebody, each of these have a different level of time commitment. And I guess skill sets you have to have to do that. Either you're doing it or someone else is doing it for you, like a maid service. Now, keep in mind that I'm not suggesting that you include a maid service if you're renting a home fully furnished with bedding or linens. You start off, you know, with providing them with what it is they need to make this house a home for them. But I'm not suggesting that what you do is enter into a a maid service agreement. Now, that anything's possible. You know, we've had situations where they've rented the home and they've been provided with furnishings and all the accruments that go with that. But for instance, maybe they don't want to cut the grass or do the gardening. So what you do is you hire a service to turn around and do that. So they'll come by once a week, you know, during the summertime and cut the grass, do the gardening. And at the same time, most people weren't interested and are not interested and, you know, having to shovel the driveway and do things like that. So you hire a service to do that and you work it into the cost. You know, the important thing is to make their, remember again, that when one spouse is transferred, and if it's going to be for a longer term, that creates a lot of anxiety. Maybe not so much for the transferring spouse, but for the one who's maybe leaving everything and bringing her the primary caregiver to the kids. I mean, you really want to make the transition as smooth for them as possible. So what we always did and do is if we had somebody coming in from wherever it might have been, parts unknown, we'd always want to 
you know, welcome them with some sort of, you know, welcome basket or give them a list of some of the amenities that were nearby. Maybe put a six pack of their favorite beverage or a couple of pints of their favorite ice cream in the freezer. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're talking about the nuances of supplying a service. And I think as an investor, if you look at it a little more carefully, or with a slightly different attitude, you'll be all that much more successful. It's not all about dollars and cents. Oh, believe you me, you know, I'm not suggesting that you be lenient if, you know, all of a sudden, you know, your tenant finds themselves a month or two behind in their rent. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the initial contact, the initial transferring and being a little more sensitive to how they're feeling and you know what you can do to kind of ease it. If your tenant is happy, especially with their initial experience, it will make you happy and you could have years. Of, and I say years because we've had situations where somebody has transferred with their family for a nominal period of time, eight months maybe, which is about the minimum that we would consider you know, either buying or taking a home and and tailoring it to their needs and ended up staying for almost four years. So you don't know how long that tenant's going to be there. I'm just saying, just try to be sensitive to it. And we can talk about that, you know, during another podcast or another time. And that really kind of falls under the management auspices because you're supplying, but with the approach of furnishing a home, it's a slightly different nuance. It's not black and white. It's not here, take the keys and be at it. What you're trying to do is you're trying to substitute what they're leaving. And it'll never be quite the same. But I'm just saying these little things pay handsome dividends. Chances are, if you have one individual and their family coming over from the UK, there are several other people coming over for the UK, maybe as part of the same project. As a matter of fact, a number of the relocation companies that we worked with, they would transfer entire units over. So we would have at one time, five, six, seven, eight families all at once, all requiring or having different needs, school needs, other needs. So, but this is an investment strategy for our investors and for ourselves pays incredible dividends. So consider that. Don't discount buying a single family home because you don't think either it's a sexy investment or you don't think the return can really pay the type of dividends another form of real estate investment can make. Okay, moving on with residential issues. The other moving into the first level of residential investment, outside of that of a single family home or condominium, would probably be something along the lines of a rooming house. And rooming houses are a real mixed bag of tricks. Very, very high on the management scale in the sense that they usually require far more management than a a standard multi-unit building. And that's because most of the occupants are either transient or they're there seasonally, or they may be there for the school year. So rooming houses, you need to be prepared to take on the challenge of a rooming house. One of the first investments I made going way back, late 70s, early 80s, were two rooming houses at the corner of Lyon and Arlington Streets in downtown Ottawa behind the bus station. And I can uh, remember the only thing that the when I went to visit the mortgage 
lender at the time. And many of you may or may not know the gentleman I'm inferring or referring to rather, but his name was Glenn Coulter. And the very first question he asked me when I showed him what it was I wanted to buy, he said, you know what you're getting into. Like you feel that you can manage this. And of course, not having had the experience, of course, I felt I could turn around and manage it. It was a real eye-opener, a real, real challenge. I remember making arrangements with a downtown motel that was selling their beds and selling their dressers and everything that would be in a hotel suite. So I went and I bought, they were a total between the two buildings, I think there were 24 units. So I thought, okay, all right, I want to start off on the right foot. So I approached the owner of the motel, asked him whether I could, you know, buy pretty much everything that he had before he opened it up to the public. He said, by all means, most certainly. So with great fanfare, I turned around and I took the beds and I took the dressers and I took the mirrors and nightstands, everything you could imagine of each one of these motel rooms. And I took it down and stored them in a garage, which was smack dab in the middle of these two rooming houses I bought. The garage was stacked from floor to ceiling, front to back. He could barely close the door. And it must have taken me a dozen trips in the pickup truck that I had at the time to take it there. So I thought, wonderful, beautiful. This is great, exactly what I wanted and needed to do. A few days later, I turn around and I go and I go to the garage and I'm Got a couple of friends with me, and we're going to move all these furnishings into the units that were either vacant or the, the residents had, had said, yes, I'd love a new bed, dresser, whatever. And I open up the door, and I couldn't believe what I saw. It was almost empty. The dressers, the beds, the night, they were empty. And just by chance, I look over my right shoulder to talk to one of my buddies who had gone with me. And I see one of the tenants from one of the rooming houses carrying one of the night tables down the street. So I thought, really? Really? Like, what? Like what's going on? So he comes back. I introduced myself. He had no idea who I was. And I said, uh, where do you think you're going with this? He said, well, I sold it all. I said, you sold it all? I said, well, you can just go right on back there and start bringing it back because it's my stuff. That was my introduction to rooming houses. I thought, Really? Really? If it's not nailed down, they're going to turn around and sell it. Now, not all rooming houses are like that. And I'm very proud of a number of units that we retrofitted and built in, in downtown Ottawa in the Sandy Hill area. Yeah. We took old dilapidated buildings and made them beautiful rooming houses. Rooming houses and, and units that you would be proud to put your mother into. Really, really nice, clean, bright, with all the amenities you could possibly expect. So they go from a complete, uh, there's a complete spectrum. But rooming houses definitely aren't for everybody. They're going to take much more management, but the returns, if they're well run, can be quite exceptional. You can actually see some really, really impressive income coming out of a rooming house. What's a room go for? Oh, today, a room, even the most basic room, is $550. It could be $550 to $650 generally. It depends. It's different than a room in a home. I mean, a room in a home, you know, you could get seven, eight, nine hundred dollars $900, depending on what, again, the amenities are. But yeah. when we first started, a room would be $255, $275. 
maybe three. And then over the years, I've seen it increase, you know, to the point where it would be pretty unusual to get a room with any, you know, a a decent room for less than $600 a month. So you multiply that by, you know, you can take a single family home, an older home, which many of these rooming houses are, and there may be seven, eight, nine units in the building. So even at a most nominal say $500, which would be, you know, I think at the low end, it's the low end definitely for us today. I mean, if you have seven units of $3,500, that's some considerable income coming out of a single family home that's being converted. But again, keep in mind that you can't necessarily take a home and convert it into a rooming house. Yeah, It doesn't work that way. We're talking about zoning issues. We're talking about, you know, amenity issues. So don't buy a single family home with the idea that you're going to be able to convert it to a rooming house with any sort of ease. Most of these type of investments are going to be pre-existing investments. A lot of them will be grandfathered. More than likely, depending on where you're located, the units will have been retrofitted, you know. So at the end of the day, rooming houses can be a great investment. But from a management standpoint, a lot of work. They're really at the far end of the spectrum when it comes to, if you're looking at a scale of one to 10, one being the least difficult and 10 being the most difficult, I'd suggest to you the majority of rooming houses are very solidly in that 7.5 to 8 range. But just like anything else, good management can change that. So having put residential aside, there's an entire group of properties we haven't discussed yet, and they fall into the commercial category. And commercial can be broken down to a number of different segments. There's essentially retail property, office buildings, and then there's the industrial manufacturing warehouse type genre. And all these are legitimate commercial investments and are categorized as commercial properties. Now, we have hybrids that are referred to as mixed-use properties, and all that is saying is that the property is used for multiple purposes. For instance, you can have a a building that may be commercial on the main floor and residential on the second and subsequent floors. You can have a building that is office on the main floor or maybe the first five or six floors and then residential on the subsequent floors. So those are referred to as mixed use properties. So I don't want our listeners to get confused if we're going back and forth. Mixed use is just what it sounds like. It's just a number of different traditional uses on one footprint. Do you understand that? So thank you, Freddie. That being said, do you have anything else to add? That's a lot of information. You know, there's probably more questions in each of these sub-levels that are probably podcasts by themselves, right? You know, if, if you're going to build a warehouse, you know, how to pick a spot and going to make things, right? And It's time for the Property Wizard's Word of the Day. So annual debt service. Ah, here we go. Word of the Day. Annual debt service. What would you like to know? If I invest, how do I match my annual debt service? And I think that's something the bank is going to look at, right? If if I'm leveraging my money. Annual debt service is very simply, it refers to the total amount of principal and interest, which you pay each year to satisfy 
the obligation of a, a loan contract or in this particular case, a mortgage payment. It forms part of what we refer to as a GDS ratio, which is a gross debt service ratio. And essentially, your gross debt service ratio is a percentage that is set by the individual lending institution, but usually varies between 30 and 33, sometimes 34% of your gross income that they feel comfortable lending you. So, for instance, if you have annual income of $100,000 and the financial institution that you deal with that you're approaching to finance your next or subsequent real estate purchase, let's say it's your single family home, uses the GDS ratio of 30%, that means that they will allow up to $30,000, 30% of your $100,000 gross income to be used to the satisfaction of your gross debt service. Your gross debt service includes your annual debt service, which you've asked about, and also the realty taxes attached to the property that you're buying. And if you're buying a condominium, that also includes not just your annual debt service, not just your realty taxes, but also your condominium payments too. So in this particular case, you're allowed to spend $30,000 a year, $2,500 a month. The property taxes may be $500. So you subtract that from the $2,500 a month you're allowed. That leaves you $2,000 or $24,000 a year that you can use in satisfaction of your annual debt service. So it's important that you understand the difference between the terms, between a GDS, a gross debt service, and your annual debt service. Again, ADS or annual debt service is a portion of your GDS. And without really complicating everything too much further, there's also another ratio referred to as a TDS ratio, which is a total debt service ratio, which not just include, is higher than your GDS ratio, is usually somewhere in the 40, 42% basis. But that TDS ratio not only includes the total of your GDS ratio, or the monies, again, that you spend on your annual debt service and taxes, but it also includes all your other debts too, like a car payment or a personal loan. So usually banks will use those two indicators to find it exactly what range you fall into when it comes to what you can afford. So again, didn't mean to get long-winded, Bernie, but annual debt service is only a portion of the GDS, but it also is only a portion of your TDS as well. Does that make any sense to you at all? Yeah, it does. Just how much you owe, uh, how much can you afford, and so everybody stays afloat. Absolutely. Well, Bernie, this has been great. There was a lot of information shared. I hope you were able to retain a great deal of it. And if you didn't, you know where to reach me. Just reach on out, send me an email, pick up the phone. It doesn't matter, Bernie, I'm here for you, one way or the other. That being said, During our next podcast episode, we're going to be talking about raising investment dollars. And I know that's going to be really interesting for a lot of people. Where do I start? Where on earth can I get the money to make my first real estate purchase? 
And having said that, again, I sign off. Remember, if there are no problems, there are no opportunities. Thanks for joining Freddie on another edition of The Property Wizard. Got a question? Ready to invest? Email info at gentryres.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the courses offered through Gentry Learning, visit gentryres.com. Until next time, remember, if there are no problems, there are no opportunities. 